So malicious actors are, is, is definitely a concern and they may be interested in causing a problem to your operation or they may be just after your data. Hey everyone and welcome to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm here as usual with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. He's going to introduce for us the subject and the guest of today's show. Andrew, how's it going? I'm well, Nate. You know, it's always it's always good to join you here. Our guest today is Greg Jones. He is an industrial security specialist at peopletech.com in Australia. And he's going to be talking to us about safety and security in mining. All right, let's listen in. Hello, Greg, and thank you for joining us. Before we get started, can you tell us a bit about yourself and you know about what you do at, at PeopleTech? So mainly I, I work uh, to assist different customers, so large customers uh, with the cybersecurity needs. Um, I guess what's special is uh, I've got a background in mineral processing engineering plus uh, IT plus business. So it really allows me to have a, a holistic view of, of how I can help. Now, in terms of that engineering background, also um, safety systems, which is, when it comes to mining, that's that's very important. Because when, when you look at cybersecurity, you can't look at it in isolation from the safety of the environment. And a lot of those principles that, safety engineering provider are very applicable to cybersecurity. A lot of the the risk analysis, uh, it, it needs to be woven back into the IT function as well. So there needs to be a complete cross-pollination between the, the way you do things in engineering and the way you do things in IT in order to achieve the security. So so that, that's that's where I fit in the picture, being able to glue everything together. And I know that you know you've been involved in in different industries. I know you've done a lot of work in water and and other industries. But you know um, our topic today is mining. Um, you know we've never had somebody on from mining before. Um, can you give us a bit of an introduction? Can you start with a physical process? I mean, you know, there's lots of different kinds of mines. You know, what kinds do you work with? If you, if I showed up at the site, what would I see? What you know? What is a mine physically? Uh, that you know, in in your experience. Yeah, so I've worked with with both underground and um, above ground mining. So when when you turn up to the mine site, you'll you'll see, uh, I guess, large buildings, roads, a lot of dirt roads. There'll be mounds where material's been dug out of the ground. Uh, there'll be facilities for the miners to, to live in and, and to eat. Uh, so for me, um, in terms of a process, the, the first thing in, in a mining process is, a, is, is you'll need to do some exploration and often you'll have different areas where they'll install um, ge geological sensors and uh, they'll do drill cores 
to to confirm where the deposit is, what what's in the deposit, uh, anything that might be a little bit hazardous, might have sulfur or different or methane gas. So that they want to they want to get a bit of a background there of the stability of the ground. So then they'll make a decision based on the the depth of the ore under the ground. So I've worked um, in in coal and in uh, copper, uh, zinc, lead. So so normally you 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 coal mines. Where I've been, they're usually above ground, but they can be underground as well. Uh, so if it's if it's above ground, what they have to do is to remove the the rock from above the ore. They call that the overburden. So that's generally done by drilling some holes and putting explosives in and uh, blowing away um, part part of the hole, and they just and then they get some large excavating equipment, very very large. Um, they're often diggers or drag lines, and, and they could, you know, in a bucket load, they might take two or three tons of ore. So they they pick that up and they just keep moving the the material off the top, and they, and they keep moving that forward and forward. Uh, so there'll be a, a high wall, a low wall. And that, that represents um, an area where you'll have sensors to check the integrity of the wall if it looks like it's going to slip and fall on everyone. So so that starts getting into the safety aspect and, and they'll use radar linked to computer systems. So, so And then once they've removed the ore, uh, they, they need to extract, make sure they get rid of gases and every, everything else. Uh, and then, and then they'll come in and they'll they'll basically have some diggers and uh, conveyors or or some means of getting that ore to a processing plant. So for coal, once it gets there, what they really want to do is wash it. They call. Um, it sounds maybe a bit odd, but but basically there's a lot of impurities and rocks and and different things. So they want to crush it up, uh, and then run it through some some different devices that separate the the coal from the the rock or that's with it and then you you'll put that into some stockpiles and usually trains or could be could be trucks but it's usually trains so it'll ship it off to a port and it'll be they'll have different blends so coal can be used for you could have something for heating or you could have something used for, for making uh, steel, coking coal. So that, that makes its way to the port and onto a big ship. And um, so, again, you've got a whole bunch of semi-loading uh, loading machinery that you, you'll need to have some, some level of control system across. And, and that'll make its way on the ship and, and off to the other side of the world or wherever it's got going or could even just be a conveyor if you have a local power station it might make its way across to the power station um, where they'll put it in the in the furnaces and and 
start the turbines and, and generate electricity there. So, Nate, let me uh, let me uh, jump in here because um, Greg is about to switch gears into below ground mining. Um, a couple of things I wanted to mention about the the above ground. Uh, you know, one thing that surprised me was, in a sense, how complicated the above ground mining was. You know, I always figured it's a hole in the ground. How complicated is that? Well, you know, there's apparently radar sensors monitoring my minute movements of the rock wall to make sure it doesn't collapse on trucks and 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 such when they're they're driving out of the uh, the the pit. So you know that that impressed me as a little more complicated than I thought. Um, and the other thing he touched on the end, um, he mentioned a conveyor instead of, you know, as an alternative to, to shipping stuff to port. Um, I just wanted to mention that, you know, a concrete example, I lived in a small town uh, out in the middle of the prairie. Uh, an hour north of town was a, a medium-sized power plant that supplied power to the whole region. And on the other side of the road, there was a conveyor that came out of the ground, crossed the highway, above the highway, and went down into the power plant. Apparently, there's a coal mine across the road, and the coal comes straight out of the the mine, straight into the power plant. So that was the the, the conveyor comment that he made there. You know, there's there's a fair bit of diversity among these these plants, and you know, as you'll see later in the interview, complexity that I really didn't anticipate. If it's underground, so um, if the if if it's not economical to remove the the overburden that's on the surface to get to the ore. They'll actually um, start start digging some shafts, and it's, it's basically like an elevator, but it'll go underground. So they'll that's it's quite a dangerous activity drilling those shafts. So you have very specialised people that do it, and they, a lot of them come from South Africa. So they'll, they'll travel they'll, they'll travel around and and. You've got special boring equipment, so it could go down, you know, two or three kilometres. So it can be, quite, you know, quite a long way. Uh, now these elevators have got their own control systems and safety systems, because you and, and they can be quite large. So you know, a small development elevator might be, or, or um, you know, might hold ten or fifteen people. Could be, could be less. But you might get a very large um, hoist, is kind of more the term, uh, might hold 200 people. So that, that becomes quite important when it comes to safety in that if something was to happen to that three-kilometre uh, hoist uh, and it was to fall to the bottom of that, that, that shaft, uh, that would essentially shut the mine down. So you know, once you get a certain number of fatalities, uh, that that tends to be the end of end of an operation. So the the safety aspect is, is so important because that's still an electronically controlled device with its own control system and hoist operator, checking checking that everything's done properly. And then when you get underground, you're going to need a, again you you'll need a truck and shovel type fleet. There's, there's different vehicles that'll, that'll have to run underground. They all need to be electronically coordinated. They'll all be communicating back. They, there's a, a driver for autonomous underground mining vehicles, uh, just, just like above ground. So that wireless communications is, is, is super important. 
you need ventilation and and the hoist it, it can have everything that comes in and out has got to come through this hoist for a for a large period of time uh, once you set up the once you you make the pathways under the under underground you, you're going to have to basically crisscross through this ore and start pulling it out and that'll cause subsidence above so you need to put in uh, bracing uh, um, different materials and your, your geological uh, monitoring to for any seismic events or, or or what might happen so you need to put sensors above that area that you're actually mining to check the stability of the surface and that has to, that's again that's again a semi-electronic system with its own type of control system so so there's a, an it aspect to that andrew all of this is is new information to me or at least most of it so it is interesting but you know we are after all an industrial cybersecurity podcast um, when are you guys going to be getting to the cyber part? Well, that's coming up. Um, but, you know, let me just say here, what surprised me about the whole interview, and you'll you'll see this throughout the interview, is the emphasis on safety. We've been talking about safety a lot. This continues all the way through the interview. In fact, you know, when I sat down with Greg, I said, let's talk about cybersecurity. And we did this interview and it's all about safety. So I changed, you know, the in a sense, the topic of the uh, of the interview retroactively to be safety and cybersecurity because I got the clear impression from from Greg that you know mining is all about safety. You cannot talk about about security without talking about safety. You cannot talk about mining without talking about safety. So that was you know that was the surprise learning for me. A couple of things about safety that I'm not sure, you know, he, he kind of went through very fast. I, I wanted to emphasize, um, you know, safety is 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 important to people. Um, you know, if, if I were working in the mine and I had to climb into an elevator and drop straight down two or three kilometers into the ground, you know, I want safety absolutely to be front of mind for everybody involved because, you know, end of the shift, I want to climb back into that elevator and get out of the ground and, you know, see my kids. So, you know, this is uh, the, the, the underground stuff is, is just scary to me. I mean, you know, maybe I'm a little claustrophobic. Uh, but the other point he made is that, you know, it's scary even to the investors. Um, he said, look, if you botch safety, if you mess it up, and people die at the mine. If enough of these miners, you know, don't come out of the ground again, that's it. The government shuts you down. So, you know, safety is, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier in, in, the, in the, uh, the episode here. You know, it's all about safety at the mines. You know, Greg went through it a bit quickly. It only really hit me when you just said it that, you know, you're sending human beings to levels of the earth that, you know, almost nobody in history will end up reaching um what kind of massive like infrastructure equipment do you need to facilitate that i'm thinking about heating and cooling i'm thinking about air pressure or whatever else it would be what you know what kind of operation are we talking about yes uh, i mean if i thought the uh, the above ground was more complicated than i expected the underground is an order of magnitude more complicated and greg does go into some of that detail later on so let's go back and listen in 
Can you talk about the automation? I mean, I, in a sense, what surprised me was, you know, there's safety concerns even when you're above ground. Um, but in terms of automation, um, what are you measuring? What are you controlling? You know, is and what's the automation look like? Are we talking PLCs? Are we talking artificial intelligence driving massive machines? What what are we talking in terms of the automation here? You've got automation in in every aspect of the process. So so you've got automation um, in the vehicles that are that are going out and removing the overburden or or, or working or moving underground. Now. It could be fully automated, partially automated. Um, so there needs to be something for managing vehicles, collision safety, collision avoidance. Uh, so, so you want to measure its physical location, its it has sensors around what's nearby, or if it's even lightly automated, have tyre sensors. Uh, it, it, if a tire was to blow, I mean that could be, you know, maybe a, a twenty or thirty thousand dollar item. So, so the there's a and you want to get the the best performance out of those, the wear and tear on on those expensive items. Then there's the driver fatigue issues. So they'll they'll have sensors in the cabin to check whether they're fatigued. Um, so that there's that whole automation package around the, the vehicles themselves, then you're going to have, and they're not PLCs per se, they'll, they'll be uh, more purpose-built uh, con- controllers that'll, that'll manage that. Then when you get into the conveyor belts and the, the wash plant or the, the processing facility, that's very much the traditional PLC and, and, and type of control system. Then when you get onto the loading facilities, it, it can be the, those PLCs or it can be, again, purpose-built controllers um, loading it onto trains or, or loading it back on, onto vehicles. That's that's it's a more of a purpose-built type type situation. When, it, when they, they want to collect all the data they can, so there'll be a, a, a big data analytics package uh, I haven't seen that it's 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 uh, automated yet but I, that, that's their vision uh, all these big mining companies want to have everything automated and they really want to remove people from site because it's very expensive to to get them out there and keep them out there and there's a, all the safety concerns then when you get into the ship loading, there's some of its PLCs. There's big boom arms. There's um, you've got all your electrical underpinning equipment. So you've got electrical control systems. Uh, there's there's got to be some water aspects, uh, water pumps, those sort of things. Uh, and then then you then you're onto the ship. So so it's it's a mixture of of purpose built controllers and and plcs with some traditional control systems and some more um, software based even the geological monitoring systems uh, they'll have a not exactly a plc but it'll be a controller 
Um, it's more of a passive thing, but it, it'll it'll still have those traditional layers of control system. Uh, you have the, the sensors and some sort of monitoring or, or management management software talking to a, a controller that controls the sensors uh, and, and then aggregates the data back. Uh, obviously, with geological, there's a huge amount of data. So, so there's a whole data storage component to that and sending it off um, to a third party. A lot of these systems are they're all third party monitored or managed in some in some way or another. Uh, I, there's a yeah, there's always a mix of uh, third party management and uh, local site staff for managing any system. So let me dig just a little deeper into the geological data. This is something that's very different from sort of conventional automation. Uh, in my understanding, this is seismic data, uh, gigabytes or even terabytes of this stuff that figures out what's happening to the ground and is it still safe underground. And this is something that, in my understanding, has to be pumped into a cloud somewhere for sort of you know some sort of big data analysis to 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 figure out what's happening with the ground. A second thing I wanted to mention, um, you know, he mentioned washing uh, stuff. He mentioned pumps. Um, one of the things that surprised me when I visited a, a large coal plant, they had a very large 90-day um, supply of coal stockpiled at the plant in case shipping was interrupted. And there was this tractor driving around on this, you know, square kilometer, 100 feet high, 30 meters high of stack of coal with a massive water tank behind it pouring water on the coal continuously to prevent spontaneous ignition. So again, you know, surprising bits of, of safety in uh, pulling stuff out of the ground and managing what comes out of the ground, you know, once you've got big stacks of it. I am curious, um, you know, you, you mentioned the, uh, the downhole environment as well. It sounds to me like you would need a fair bit of automation just to keep the environment livable. I mean, you need air down there, you need light down there. You got to presumably have a way to keep the the a hole that deep from filling up with I don't know groundwater. Um, you know, can you talk about that? Yeah. So, so they have a they have um, two ways of of getting access underground. So depending on 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 you know things. So. So when they drill that shaft down, they have to put the electrics. If they're going to put any water, um, uh, they have to drill different holes for for ventilation. So there'll be different ventilation shafts to get to get that in and out. Um, there may yeah, there can be a lot of water under there, so there'll be some a pumping system to pump that water potentially out or or just into a different area. What longer term, what they do is a thing called a drift. So it's instead of so they'd make a sideward tunnel where you can actually drive all the way down to that mine. But the the first part is is the uh, is the shaft. So the drift, if they can get one of those in place, it allows them to put a high speed conveyor to get the ore out because it's much quicker than. Imagine lifting a buckets up and down in a hoist. It, it's it's doable, but it, it's much better if you can just have a conveyor straight out. You can get a high speed. Um, you can push the electrics down there as well. 
your vehicle access, it, it's just all, all around much better. So, so then you'll need something to coordinate that ventilation. You'll need to do a lot of planning as to where you're going to put the shafts. And, and as you develop the ore seam more and more, uh, you, you, you'll need to plan out the fans. So they, they have fans to do a lot of the ventilation. So they actually want movable fans as they, they move the, the development underground. Um, you'll have your, all your own electrical subsystems there. You'll have, uh, they'll have safety chambers as well. So um, basically emergency chambers, if there was a problem, they need to have enough capacity in those emergency chambers uh, if based on the number of people you can have underground. So there's actual limitations based on, based on the emergency chambers there. They have, with a wireless network underground, they'll have sensors on everything. So they want to track not just the vehicles, but they want to track the people too. So that if there's an incident, they know where they are, the type of man down. Uh, and, and again, that's got its own management console um, so yeah, there's 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 a, there's a whole raft of things you you have to look at in terms of control systems for the ventilation, control systems for the electric system under there, control systems for the vehicles, control systems for the emergency chambers, uh, a type of monitoring system for the people underground and the vehicles. Uh, uh, You'll have different sensors for the environment, uh, geological and, and the, the temperature, because it can get actually hot under there. So as you go down, it gets a bit cooler, and then you reach a point where it starts getting hotter, basically because there's, there's radioactive elements in everything, not enough to cause you any concern, but when the energy is released from radioactive particles underground it's got nowhere to go so so the temperature can also be uh, quite a concern it, it can actually get quite hot under there so you'll need cooling and and interestingly one of the mines i, I worked in was in mongolia so in the winter it can get to sort of minus 40 minus 50 degrees so, so obviously you need some heating underground as well. Uh, you need heating all the way up to the surface. Uh, there'll be frozen pipes. It, it become the environmentals will become quite challenging. Thanks for that. Um, you know, and this is the the industrial security podcast. Can we talk about cybersecurity in this you know very complex environment? Um, what are the cybersecurity priorities in in mines? It's going to cover everything. So, so you can have you know, local or or uh, state actors that may be unhappy. Uh, they can you, different locations can be a bit of a, a geopolitical football because you, you you can go into some somewhat contested areas. So, so malicious actors are, is is definitely a concern, and they may be interested in causing a problem to your operation or they may be just after your data. Uh, we've seen we've seen in, in, in different places that both of those types of things things happen. 
when you sell large large contracts, uh, if they can find out the cost of your processing, uh, they can they can be very helpful in contractual negotiations because they know what your lowest number is. So you want to protect your your financial data, your uh, your uh, intellectual property. Uh, again, a contractor may may work out what you do and don't have, and and the, if they want to sell a certain item, that that knowledge of of what you industrial espionage knowledge is is, is quite valuable to them. There was an incident for one of the companies I worked for where they were able to get access to to that sort of financial data and and they were able to you know they found out afterwards they they were able to be negotiated and it cost them billions of dollars so some of these contracts and that that's a whole side that's mixes with the corporate IT as, as much as with the industrial IT then in terms of um, these systems so if you'd look at something like that hoist if someone was to gain some sort of control and and allow it to to drop down and bypass the safety systems then you know that that would be you know, a, a massive event uh, even if 10 people died uh, the the backlash that that would basically shut down the mine that would be a a global public relations incident for for a company and they their license you know their social license to operate would be questioned globally so so those safety aspects are, are actually very important um, so so there's a whole control system for something like a hoist there's a there's a number of safety backups and the risk from a cybersecurity perspective is if they're not uh, properly kept independent in terms of uh, have you got cybersecurity barriers between the different systems? So if, if, if someone, usually a remote access vendor, uh, they can tend to have be smaller operators. They may not have, have the best cybersecurity but you know you only have a small choice and 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 they like to do things certain ways so so if if the systems aren't set up correctly to to secure that remote access then that's a very significant issue uh, another one is if they don't have the the funding so so when funding goes up and down they may continue with older systems that are less secure. Uh, these systems have a much longer lifespan than you might think in traditional IT. So instead of thinking of a three or four year lifespan, you might think of a 10 or a, 10 or a 20 year lifespan. Uh, 10 years tends to be a, a more, more traditional number, but it, it could be longer. So you're trying to keep out a modern threat with remote access with old technology, um, it, it tends to be a really an eggshell type model where it's a hard perimeter, but once you're inside, it, and, and that speaks to a, a lot of people 
being concerned about integrating all these IT systems with the with the safety systems in particular. They do tend to want to keep them quite separate and as physically separate, even even if possible. There's a significant risk in interconnecting those safety systems. But you still need to give consideration to other things like viruses, uh, it being maintainable over its life lifetime, especially if it's a remote location. It, the vendors are generally going to want some form of remote access, which is your, it just provides a significant risk uh, because you can't easily put in advanced security there. Uh, a lot of these systems are bespoke, very, very vendor specific. So, so you're relying on your vendor to, to give you that capability to secure everything. Now, the more uh, modern control systems have a lot of features for doing that. So where we were at, we well, the hoist I was I was working on, I was doing a cybersecurity safety assessment on that, um, and yeah, and then and on newer ones. So so you have to have to do that combined uh, safety assessment with the the engineering team. And you insert those, those cybersecurity requirements. There's now cybersecurity safety standards. Uh, they're linked into the functional safety standards now. So, so there's requirements in there. Uh, a lot of that stuff started around 2010. So it's it's reasonably new, and uh, and uh, yeah, it's only sort of in the, in the last couple of years. You're getting the right templates and that right integration to to plan the cybersecurity effectively and, and build it in. So you're going to be dealing with a lot of legacy issues for the next 15 years, probably. I think we all have some idea of, you know, how people go underground and dig up rocks. But listening to Greg sort of opens up this entire new universe of systems that you need to obviously support that, all of these safety systems that he's describing, even just in getting people down there and facilitating them, uh, you know, not not dying. Um, it occurs to me, though, that with all of these systems in place, we often talk about what kinds of, you know, attack scenarios can occur. I, we don't usually hear about uh, cyber attacks against mines. But let's play this out. In, in a worst-case scenario, um, with so many systems necessary to support the safety of miners, what could theoretically occur? Well, um, you know, we're talking about a lot of safety systems. Anytime you impair a safety system, you risk the system failing to detect unsafe conditions, failing to raise the alarm or shut down unsafe processes. Um, so the worst case is, you know, casualties at the site. This is this is very bad. The worst case is very bad. And, you know, in terms of how worried should we be, the other point that, that Greg made was remote access. A lot, a lot of these mines really are very remote. And so they're hard to get to. And so if you need expert assistance from vendors or from, you know, even your own people at head office, they need remote access to the sites. And anytime you've got remote access, we've got 
connectivity that contributes to cyber threat. So you got, you know, a potentially very sophisticated adversary is coming after you. We've got connectivity for remote access. We've got a lot of safety systems. You know, this is very much something to worry about. The good news so far is that, and, you know, I did some some searching um, after the interview. I found almost no cyber incidents in mines that affected physical operations. So, you know, everyone worries about this because it's, you know, the, the downside is so very down. Uh, but practically speaking, we've seen comparatively few, few incidents, which is good. This is the way we want to keep it. This is why we continue investing in cybersecurity for these mining safety systems. So you've mentioned safety and cybersecurity a number of times. I mean, I have the sense that safety is a very big deal in these mines. You've talked about the standards. Can you give us the next level of detail on these standards? I mean, are these the are these ISA IEC standards? What what are these, and you know, what do they demand? Uh, sort of over and above regular automation cybersecurity. Okay, so it tends to be a mix of um, stuff coming out of. Uh, in National Society of Automation, or, or, or that started its life there, plus stuff that uh, more generically out of Europe, the IEC standards, uh, they, they tend to be adopted um, generically everywhere. And then there's a whole bunch of other very specific standards. So so a lot of stuff's based on the IEC 62443 or, or the ISA 99-type type standards. So that's your, your cyber security. And that stuff usually gets a mention. It can also be the generic uh, ISO 27001. Uh, all of them are good because the, the, the initial root of all cyber security standards is really the ISO 27001. So, but they, they add a, a specific flavor with the industrial cyber security. In terms of functional safety standards, it's the... Um, IEC uh, 615.08, which is the the more generic one, and then 615.11 for process control. And then there's specific ones for uh, machinery, uh, vehicles. There there tends to be a a significant number of these standards, but but the the main umbrella one is is your 615.08 and and 615.11. So those standards now call out your industrial cybersecurity standards or your, or your regular cybersecurity, and they say you need to do a cybersecurity assessment and you need to put in relevant cybersecurity to ensure the safety. Now, there's also some um, cybersecurity papers around linking that standard the, the cybersecurity standards to the functional safety standards. So yeah, that's that's a mix between the ISO 84 and the, uh, which is is the functional safety area of ISA International Society of Automation, and the ISA 99, which is the cybersecurity area. Waterfall Security Solutions is the OT security company. In our latest report, we look back at 2020. We observe that the most important threats in 2020 were targeted ransomware, supply chain breaches, and cloud connectivity. 
we pull these threats together into four new kinds of blended attacks. Then we look at different kinds of cyber defenses, and we determine how effective these defenses are against each of these modern attacks. To access these insights into today's threats and what can be done about them, please download our report at waterfall-security.com slash 2020 report. So Nate, uh, real quick here, in reviewing the recording, I realized that uh, Greg talked about this paper that was connecting the uh, the cybersecurity to the safety standards, but he never actually gave us the name of it. I checked with him afterwards. Um, you know, the, the, the names of these standards, if you want to look them up, it's IEC 62443 is cybersecurity, um, IEC 61508 and 61511 are for the functional safety, and that paper was Technical Report TR. 84.00.09-2017. It's cybersecurity related to the functional safety life cycle. So talking about safety and cybersecurity, I recall a number of years ago, I was told by you know an expert in the field that um, there's issues with connecting safety systems to other systems through firewalls, that it's not allowed. But I see the vendors, you know, providing safety systems with, with multiple, multiple kinds of connections. It seems like connectivity and, and safety systems are happening. Can you talk about that? You have to have some sort of physical, uh, some sort of security gateway between your safety systems and your, um, and, and your normal control system. Now, that can be a hardwired connection, or which is really a, an analog signal, so that the person in the control room can know the status of your safety system and the and the the control system at the same time. Or it can be can be integrated in. So they have a thing called a safety integrity level or a SIL rating to to work out what reliability you need on a on a safety system so if it's a low number it's a it requires lower reliability and if it's a high number it, it's it, it's very requires a very high reliability and you tend to match the security requirements with those reliability requirements so if it's a got a lower seal rating there, there tends to be a, a a lot more comfort in um, having an untraditional style connection through a firewall to that system. Uh, but if it's a, a higher rating, then it, it's in that uh, probability of preventing uh, a safety incident that has a, a much larger weighting. So a lower SIL system might reduce the risk of a significant incident by a factor of 10. Whereas a, a more uh, uh, a, a more important system might reduce it by a factor of a thousand. So when you do those safety calculations, a system that removes a, by a factor of a thousand needs a you need to make sure it's working and there's nothing interfering and no one's done anything to that system. So and, and those systems usually only exist if you're doing something that's very dangerous. 
maybe uh, you you would see those on something like a train or a or a, or a hoist because it's just an inherently dangerous um, thing you're doing, and 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 you you're relying on the control system and, and its safety backups to 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 secure the safety of that system. It's it's quite different to uh, if you you're digging a hole, you can you can have a gap between the operator and the hole. Uh, they can sit outside the hole. Uh, you can put safety barriers to prevent the the vehicle from slipping in. Um, it, it, you've got a lot more options, but something that's at a high speed, like a train or a or a um, or a hoist, it's you you need to um, to really protect that. And and you may decide that something like a firewall, a, a traditional security gateway, doesn't give you that assurance level. Uh, for protecting that safety system, in, in which case you'd you'd want to do a hardwired connection, or, or there's some there's other devices that uh, allow the communications out uh, in a in a in a one-way direction, which which sort of sounds a bit impossible when you you think about traditional IP-style communications, but you 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 may consider that. Um, that kind of device if if it's in if you really need a high volume of data so a couple of points of of clarification here um greg mentioned an analog signal you know hardwired um let me say a few words about that um this is he's talking about uh, the the ability of, of some safety systems to put out really what you want in terms of monitoring your safety systems is to know if the system is working is it still powered up is does it you know is the is it running through the logic on a regular basis, and uh, a lot of these systems will have what's called an analog output, which is uh, you know a, a voltage on a wire saying yes I'm working or no I'm not a one or a zero, and you can run that wire into a programmable logic controller and monitor the voltage, but there's no way to send any information or any cyber attack back into the safety CPU through that analog connection. It's a voltage coming out. It means nothing going back in. So that's a, a, a way to monitor the most cautious of safety systems without even uh, any kind of cyber connection to the system at all. Um, the other, you know, the other thing I wanted to mention is is uh, you know he talked about SL one through SL four. I wanted to mention that you know traditional safety systems analysis is very probabilistic. Nothing is perfect. Everything fails from time to time. But the assumption is that safety, physical safety equipment and cyber safety equipment fails at more or less random intervals. And so if you need something to be more safe uh, you know, than, than the reliability of a single safety device can give you, if you need greater reliability, you put two of them in parallel. And there's calculations in terms of how often do they fail, how long do they take to detect the failure, how long does it take to replace uh, these systems, typically days. Um, how many of these systems do you really need in parallel in order to get the degree of reliability that you need for the safety system? The thing about cyber is that 
if it takes one message into a safety system to disable that safety system, and you've got three or four of them in parallel, it costs almost nothing to send the same message to the other parallel systems. And so, you know, he mentioned this a little bit earlier, it's very important to have these systems as independent as possible on separate networks, you know, not talking to each other so that if you do manage to compromise one of them, you still don't have much of a chance of reaching the other ones and they can still do their job. So this, you know, this interconnected question is one he says you know you can you can maybe do firewalls on the 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 simplest and least uh, critical of your safety systems but you're going to use analog connections you're going to use unidirectional gateways you're going to use something stronger on the most important of your safety systems i have a question about um the risk calculations that you were mentioning there how you know you sort of add on safety systems uh to increase the likelihood of a random error not causing destruction. Um, something that we had emphasized earlier in the podcast is that, you know, if, if you're the guy who has to go three kilometers down in an elevator um, into the earth, you want to make sure that everybody around you is taking safety really, really seriously. Um, so my question is, uh, at what point do you stop and say that, you know, our systems at this point are safe enough with X number of safety systems and Y percentage chance that they might fail? Like, how do you know when to stop adding on? That's a very good question. So um, the I don't have an example in mining, but the kinds of numbers... Um, that I've I've seen given as an example in the refining industry, you know, you know, petrochemical refining, where you've got oil coming in, you've got very hot oil in these catalytic crackers, things can explode. Um, the, the the numbers go something like this: they say, how many refineries are there on the planet? There's maybe a thousand. What's an acceptable rate of failure of the refineries? Because all safety costs money. Nothing is ever perfectly safe. You can always make something more safe. Where do you stop? And so you have to have a number. Pick a number. Let's say if you have an explosion at a refinery um, somewhere on the planet, once per century, that you know affects five or six people. You might say the world is willing to pay that price once a century, an explosion in a refinery somewhere. That's that's as that's as safe as we want to make it. How do we do that? Well, um, there's a thousand refineries. So um, if once a century is acceptable worldwide, your goal for each refinery is once every thousand times a century, once every hundred thousand years. How many devices are there, or how many things, physical things, are there in a refinery that can cause an explosion? There might be a thousand things in each refinery that can cause an explosion. So each of those thousand things had better fail no more than once every hundred thousand years, hundred million years, because you multiply by a thousand. And uh, now uh, you ask, um, how reliable are my safety devices? They fail on average once every 30 years. Well, I cannot tolerate a failure every 30 years. I need a failure every 100 million years. So you say, okay, um, you know, when they fail, they're replaced within a day. Um, if I have two of them in parallel, I get 30 years times 30 years. That's what? Uh, 30 times, you know, oh, brain blank. You can't multiply the seconds like that. But basically, you, you, uh, you, you work the probabilities 
You know, I'm a math major. I should be able to do this on the fly, but I can't. You do two or three or four of them in parallel until you get a failure every 100 million years, assuming that they fail independently. Uh, not that a single trigger will cause them all to, to, to fail simultaneously. So that's the trick with cybersecurity is to keep the safety systems truly independent so that these calculations do hold up in practice. Andrew, I understand your point, but there's no refinery that's going to last 100 million years. So these numbers sort of seem like they're a bit separated from reality. Yeah, it's it's not that, you know, anyone expects a refinery to last 100 million years. You can deal with the numbers, you know, the 100 million, or you can deal with their inverse, which is, you know, a likelihood of failure for a given device of less than one in 100 million. And it's just easier talking about the large numbers than, than the small. Nobody expects a refinery to last uh, 100 million years, but they do expect that when a safety system is called upon to act, that it has an extremely small possibility of failure. And it's these extremely small numbers, the inverse of the 100 million that, that the math talks about. Thank you for the insights into mining here. Um, before we, we part ways, though, is there a, a thought you'd like to leave with our listeners? There needs to be that that integration of the, the safety and the, the, uh, the traditional IT and the, the control systems. And, and it needs to be threaded through all the, the needs to be threaded through all the IT processes uh, and, and the IT processes need to be linked into the engineering processes with the control room. There needs to be that tight integration uh, which I'm not really telling anybody anything new there, but uh, yeah, that 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 tight integration and and that focus on safety and the understanding of your your safety standards and how they relate to what you're doing is is critical to securing the systems. If you don't understand the safety implications and the actual standards that you need to follow, then you can't uh, place the cybersecurity correctly because your your, sa- your safety level is linked very much to your cybersecurity level. There, uh, the plus is that people in the cybersecurity field are very aware of risk management. Um, they, they tend to do a lot of that and that links them cleanly into these risk management standards in engineering. So where you actually find the weakness is the traditional IT person won't have that risk background. So what we found is that cybersecurity in a lot of ways has to lead the risk conversation for IT. Um, because they do so much of the risk and, and is a very much a good bridge for linking engineering and IT. Andrew, you heard Greg's last word. Do you have something to take us out with? Yeah, so again, you know, my biggest takeaway here is the importance of safety. I mean, you know, in, in a power plant, which I'm a little more familiar with, um, you know, there are safety systems, safety is important, but the safety systems tend to be comparatively simple, comparatively isolated to a, a handful of, of dangerous circumstances. Um, 
in mining, the safety systems seem to be everywhere, and there's such a diversity of them. Everything from you know seismic analysis, gigabytes of seismic analysis, to radar sensors sensing the you know the the microscopic movements of of walls in open pit mines to you know the obvious methane sensors underground and and safeties on these these massive you know three kilometer long elevators um safety seems to be everywhere in in mining and seems to be everywhere in the automation of mining so that's that's my big takeaway is the 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 importance and the the prominence of safety systems in mining automation Yeah, I'm glad we did this topic. Thanks to Greg Jones for bringing it up with us. And thank you, Andrew, for speaking with me. Always a pleasure, Nate. We'll catch you next time. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast from Waterfall. Thanks to everyone listening. Mm